Turning your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 92. Psalm 92. We're going to be looking at the first four verses and uh, many other uh, passages as well. Uh, this morning, we are uh, realize a number of people here are visiting. We're in the midst of a series uh, following on our annual leadership strategy meeting, which was a few weeks ago. We usually spend all uh, evening Friday and all day Saturday. Uh, reflecting back on the year gone by and uh, what we've done well, what we've not done well, what opportunities or threats uh, are presented to us and how we could uh, change things for the better and improve in the year to come. And we noted that uh, we had a number of weaknesses as a congregation um, and this sermon series is an attempt to address those weaknesses that we might improve. And as uh, Christians, of course, we're called to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So being a Christian is not a static uh, experience. It's one which is constantly excelling uh, and changing more and more, being conformed to the image of God. So we all have room to improve. I hope that we all are humble enough to admit that none of us have arrived And it's in an attempt uh, from your leadership and from this pulpit to provide direction as to how we may continue to grow. We began three weeks ago by looking at corporate prayer. Uh, We assume that everybody has a prayer life, however imperfect that may be. But as a congregation, we are very weak in the area of corporate prayer, praying together. Uh, So we focused on all that the Bible had to teach about corporate prayer. And I was convicted um, by actually how much the Bible has to teach about corporate prayer. I trust you were as well. Then last week, we looked at every member ministry. That is, that it is the task of those who are pastor teachers, like Pastor Dan and myself, to equip you to do the work of ministry. It's not my job, though I'm called a minister. I don't like that term. Uh, But uh, to equip you to do the ministry. So every member has a ministry. And I would ask you again, as uh, following up on that last week, what, what is your ministry at Messiah's Reform Fellowship? Um, and then uh, we're going to look at evangelism as an area of weakness in our congregation and tithing. And those two will be in the weeks to come. Today we want to look at worship. And uh, you look around this room, and there's very few empty seats, and you say, well, where's the weakness? Well, the weakness is not at 1130. The weakness is at 1030. We have two worship services um, here. And uh, my purpose this morning is to encourage you to attend both services, all right? Um, Is it a sin uh, if you're not here for two services? No, it's not. Nobody's going to be put under discipline uh, for doing that, all right? Um, But... Uh, I am hoping positively to present to you the benefit uh, that two, attending to worship services provides for your spiritual health and how that can benefit you, all right? Uh, what you're missing uh, if you're not here for both worship services. Um, now, let's admit at the outset that there are providential hindrances to attending both worship services. Um, when it's uh, Marathon Sunday, um, people get to the Willis Avenue Bridge, can't get across because of all the runners, they turn around and go home. All right? There are providential hindrances. The subways break down on the weekend. It's difficult to get from you know, East Brooklyn to Central Manhattan. Uh, there are babies and, uh, and, and those kinds of things. Um, we have 
people in the congregation that work on Saturday night. Some work quite late. Some don't get to sleep till five or six in the morning. It's, uh, it's understood that they're not going to be here at 1030. But they're here for 1130 because they see that being in worship is important. All right. So with all that said, all right, uh, I hope that's sufficient qualification. We want to look at what Scripture has to say about the blessings and the benefits of attending worship multiple times um, on a Lord's Day. All right. And we want to do that by looking at the first four verses of Psalm 92 and some other verses as well. So uh, if you read along with me, if your Bibles are open, Psalm 92, you'll notice uh, the superscription, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, obviously talking about worship, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness a second time by night. In the temple, when this psalm was written, there was morning and evening sacrifice, or afternoon, if you will, right? There were two sacrifices. It was a pattern of worship twice on the Sabbath. And then continuing with worship, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre, for you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. Let's state at the outset that that is a gospel motivation, not a guilt motivation. I, I, I've stated every Sunday, I have no interest in, uh, in inculcating guilt in you. It's a terrible way to motivate God's people to worship, no matter how prevalent it may be in Christian pulpits. So I'm trying to be positive this morning and promote this to you, but at the outset, look, this is a gospel motivation, all right? For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. It's the God who has reached down to those who are dead in trespasses and sins, those who are hopeless and helpless, and rescued, redeemed, and saved us. The response to which is worship, all right? Okay. So, two main positive blessings I want to focus on this morning. The first is the Sabbath. Now, I realize that for some of you, perhaps many, this idea of Sabbath is something new, or if you've heard it before, you may not fully understand it, all right? But let's uh, look at that. Uh, this morning, all right? James Boyce, whom Eddie Urban knows is my favorite preacher, I often tell Eddie, when I grow up, I want to be like James Boyce. He said this on this psalm, Sunday is at least a day to worship God. The psalm we are to study now, Psalm 92, is the only one in the Psalter specifically designated for the Sabbath, and it tells us something that it is certainly good to do, to praise the Lord, and to do so throughout the day from morning until night. So I ask as we start, how do you approach Sunday? Do you think of it as a day in which you have to go to church, but the duties of which you try to get over as soon as possible so you can spend the rest of the time with your family and get on with the other more enjoyable things? Or do you think of it as a precious day given to you by God in which you can learn about him and so praise him? Is Sunday a trial or a treat? Is it a delight or a deadly duty? Sunday should be a time for thanksgiving and joyful celebration. The Sabbath, which I want to examine with you this morning, is a blessing from God to you and to me as his people. 
Now, if you know anything about Sabbath observance in Christian circles, you know it is one of the most guilt-manipulating things uh, in the Christian church. What can you do? What can't you do? What should you do? What shouldn't you do? You know, uh, and that's replete, right? We're not, but Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God designed it as a blessing, all right? So let's go back. And let's look at creation. Look at Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Verses 1 and 2. This is the account of the creation. I'm not going to go through all the days of creation, all right, in chapter 1, but... Uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were formed, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, that is the Sabbath, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Note specifically, please. This is a different day. It is not like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. What makes it different? Two things. One, God blessed it. God separated it. God sanctified it. Made it distinguished, distinct from the other days of the week and made it special. The second thing is, that we'll see in a moment, all right, is that it establishes a pattern for you and for me that we are to follow. Look at Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. You may or may not be aware that one of the big ten, the Ten Commandments, the fourth commandment, has to do with the Sabbath mentioned in this psalm, Psalm 92. Exodus 20, uh, verses 9 through 11, all right? I'm sorry, 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your maidservant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gate. And get this now, verse 11, get it. The rationale, four. Here's why. Here's the explanation. The rationale. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now notice the reason given for observing the Sabbath. You're to be like God. God worked six days, rested one day. You're to work six days, rest one day. This is what Paul says in Ephesians when he says, put on the new man created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. We were created in the image and likeness of God to be like God. Sin had us fall from that relationship, right? But grace restores nature, restores us, right, to a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ, through his death and his resurrection, all right? And restored to that place where we are created, the new man is created to be like God once again, to imitate God. And we do that in the cycle of our week. It's very interesting that all Western civilizations follow a pattern of seven days. 
The French Revolution, in its attempt to do away with Christianity, instituted a nine-day week. It didn't work. It didn't work. We continue to operate on a seven-day week. You see today, if you go in Barnes & Noble and you get like a day planner or something, we see another attempt to do with the Christian or biblical understanding of a week when the first day of the week is Monday in your day planner. First day of the week is not Monday. First day of the week is Sunday, the Christian Sabbath. All right? So anyway, enough about that. There, I did a sermon on this some years ago. Greg, it was one of Greg Tubby's favorites. Calendrical Cosmology. Look it up on Sermon Audio, all right? All right, all right, okay. But you see the point, right? This is one of the big ten. You're to observe the Sabbath. Why? Well, because you follow God's pattern. Now, look back at verse 2. I just want to keep this front and center here, all right? The Ten Commandments are given in a context of pure grace. Look, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying... I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God goes on, Deuteronomy says, it wasn't because of anything that you are. You're just a bunch of shlemiels and shlemazels. And it wasn't because of anything that you did. It was because I loved you. Why did I love you? I loved you because I loved you, for my own good pleasure. Pure grace, all right? Pure grace, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. Therefore, therefore, imitate me. Observe the Sabbath. All right? There's a gospel motive, you see. Just like in Psalm 92, how do we respond to the gospel? All right? We imitate God. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, the second giving of the law. Deuteronomos is second law. Second giving of the law, Israel's poised on the border of uh, entering to the promised land. Deuteronomy chapter 5, God repeats the Ten Commandments to a whole new generation as they're going to enter into the land. Look at verse 12, we have the fourth commandment stated there. What I want you to note, I'm giving you a hint beforehand, all right, so you catch it, all right? There's a different motive given here. An entirely different rationale. Look, verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or a male servant, female servant, ox, donkey, any of your livestock, sojourners within your gates, male servant, female servant, may rest as well as you. Here's the rationale. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, that's why, the Lord, your God, commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Exodus 20 says, you're to imitate me. I work six days, rest one day. You work six days, rest one day. Deuteronomy, why should you observe the Sabbath? Because you were a slave. If you're a Christian, you were dead in transgressions and sins. You were helpless. You were hopeless. God reached down from on high in the power of his spirit and the glory of his gospel to pluck you as a brand from the fire, draw you to himself with cords of compassion, and say, I love you because I love you. Now remember that on the Sabbath day. Is this fun or what? I think it's kind of fun, right? There's one more. Look at Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah chapter 58. 
Another passage about the Sabbath. Verse 13. If you turn your, back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own way and seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And he will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. If you're not familiar with this, these are messianic blessings. These are blessings which Israel was to enjoy in the days of the Messiah. And God says, if you will not be selfish on my day, you'll enjoy these blessings. Am I being positive? All right, being positive here, all right? Dirk Kidner says this. He says, It was at the same time a test of faith and loyalty against the pull of self-interest, going your own way, Isaiah says. The Psalms picture of, Psalm 92, picture of transient worldlings, and in contrast of the godly who ever renew their strength is doubly appropriate. There was a group of people in the congregation who recently got together on a Sunday afternoon and they were feasting and laughing and having a great time. And somebody wrote me an email and they said, surely this was... This was a foretaste of heaven. And that's what the Sabbath is to be. Look around this congregation. 28 different nationalities, every tribe and nation and people and tongue. You are foretaste of heaven. And you're to enjoy this day, one another and God. Turn back to Exodus 20. I have to do this. It's going to take a few minutes, but I have to do this. If you're a very good Bible student, well, if you're a good Bible student, you know that in Ephesians... Right? Husbands and wives are modeled after Christ as the groom and the church as the bride. Right? So here's a question. Where did Jesus marry the church? Nobody wants to answer. Ezekiel chapter 16 in the Old Testament, God married the Old Testament church, Israel. It says that. It's a beautiful story. Read it later. All right? We don't have time to look at it. What I'm... What I'm what I'm proposing to you this morning, all right, is that God married his church at Sinai. That the entirety of the event at Sinai, from a Jewish perspective, right, we're a bunch of Goyish people here, right? We're all Gentiles, right? We don't, we don't see the Bible through Jewish eyes. But for any Jew looking at this, recognizes immediately what they see at every Jewish wedding ceremony. Look at, look at, look at Exodus Uh, Look at Exodus uh, 19, where the covenant is established, right? God says, this is what I've done. Verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagle wings and brought you to myself. He's wooing his bride. This is what I've done for you. I saved you. I rescued you. I looked down. I flew you out of danger. I brought you to myself, right? 
now they are few and indeed uh, obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession, my segula, my segula. Among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, you should be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, right? That's the wedding invitation. It's the wedding invitation, and it's a proposal. The Lord proposes to his people. Here's what I've done for you. Will you be my bride? Look at verse 8. All the people answered together and accept the invitation. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then, if you know anything about a Jewish wedding celebration, the bride and groom stand under a chupa, a chupa, right? Verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. And then the preparation of the bride in verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people, consecrate them today for tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day, for the Lord will come down. And then look up at verse 16, right? Verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast. And here comes the bride, verse 17. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. And then there's music, verse 19. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. And here comes the groom. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai on top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. And then chapters 20 through 24 are known by theologians as the book of the covenant. That's the marriage contract. It's the marriage covenant between God and his people. Turn over to chapter 24. Turn over to chapter 24. At the end of the ceremony, verse 3, we hear, I do. Moses came and told all the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. I do. Look at verse 7. Here's the, they're signing the marriage license. He took the book of the covenant, read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all his words. God's covenants, God's relationship with his people are always sealed in blood. This is a picture of the blood of Jesus Christ, which, remember, that's what Paul said. He purchased his bride with his own precious blood. Jesus went to the cross and sat sacrificed and bled and died to bear the sins of his people and to purchase his bride for himself by his shed blood, cleansing them, washing them, purifying them. And then the wedding feast in uh, uh, verse 10, they saw the God of Israel that was under his feet as it were a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for cleanness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people and they beheld God and they ate and they drank. And then the relationship is consummated. I say that reverently. Verse 15, Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. and He was there 40 days and 40 nights. Now, for most even good Bible students, that's where the book of Exodus ends. Right? We remember the Exodus, remember Pharaoh, remember the Red Sea, remember the Ten Commandments, Book of the Covenant, maybe, maybe not. But of course, you know that the book of Exodus doesn't end for many more chapters. Chapter 40. What's the rest of the book of Exodus about? 
Anybody? No. No. It's building the tabernacle. It's the honeymoon cottage. Now, whether you think this is fanciful or not, I, you, you know, none of you are Jews, all right? So that's part of the big problem, right? A Jew would recognize this immediately. Why do I tell you this? God blessed the Sabbath day and made it special. Reminds you why you should observe it. To be blessed by your relationship with him. That's why it's important to be in worship. It's where we meet God. We're going to see that in a moment, all right? If I, if I can say this reverently, it's almost as if the Sabbath day is where God consummates his relationship with his people. What could be more important than that? Tennis? Football? Shopping? Chores? Schluff? God says, I made this one day for you and me. Six days do all your work. I realize you got to go out, you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to earn a living, you got to. But this day, this day's for me and you. How many people in my pastoral ministry I've talked to? Oh, I fell behind on my Bible reading. I got to Leviticus. I gave up. I couldn't get your dates. The end of February, I lost track of months ago. Here's a whole day. You can just sit down with your Bible. And be alone with God. Or be in his house twice. Three times. I remember somebody asking Bob Godfrey years ago. He said, do we really have to worship twice on Sunday? He said, no. We can make it three times. (laughs) (laughs) I was telling my wife this week, I said, "In, in Calvin's Geneva, they worshiped every day. In Korea, when revival came to Korea, every day at church, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock in the morning, before they had to go to work, to meet with God. The bridegroom, the lover of my soul, the savior of my soul. One more. One more blessing. Where do you meet your husband? In worship. In worship. Psalm 92. It's good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and again at night. To the music of the lyre and the harp, melody of the flute, uh, lyre, for you've made me glad by your work. Now, just a little quick lesson on worship. 
What is worship? A lot of confusion, misunderstanding about this in the contemporary North American evangelical church. It's very simple. Worship is meeting with God. It's where you meet your maker. It's where you meet your husband. It's where you worship him, where you adore him, where you love him, where you sing praise to him, where, if you will, in the words of John Piper, you glorify and enjoy him. And how do you glorify God? You glorify God by enjoying God. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. A couple of more passages here. A couple of more just on worship. Hebrews 12. What in the world is going on when you come to 21st Street on Sunday morning? Well, the author of Hebrews tells you. He's speaking to Hebrews, right? And he's contrasting this with the Israel that we read about in Exodus. Verse 18. For you have not come... To what may be touched, the blazing fire and darkness and gloom and the tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words make the hearers beg, no further messages may be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you, church, unlike Israel at Sinai, you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. I like the NIV much better here. To thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. And to the assembly of the firstborn are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What's the author of Hebrews saying? When you walk through that door, Sunday morning, 10.30, 11.30, you're no longer on 21st Street and Park Avenue South. You've entered heaven. You're in the presence of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ, who speaks to you. More on that in a moment. And there are thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Do you know that right now there are thousands upon thousands of angels here? Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians. He says that's why women have to have a sign of authority on their head. You can beat me up about that later, all right? But the reason Paul gives is not what most Christians say. They say, well, that was culture. Paul says it's because of the angels. Right now, there are thousands upon thousands of angels right here. And they don't have never-dying souls. They were not dead in trespasses and sins and redeemed. And I think it's Peter who says that they look down and they, they marvel at what God has done in rescuing sinners and drawing them to himself. That's why when the call to worship 
goes out, that's not Caesar Santana, right? We're reading the Bible. That's not Pastor Murphy, Pastor Ragusa. God is calling you into his presence and calling you to come. Render unto me my worship. Look up the origin of the word worship. It's giving God his worth. And God says, come. Glorify the Lord. Let us exalt his name. I submit to you that if this is how you thought about worship, your Saturday nights would be transformed, especially you young people. You know what they say, youth is wasted on the young, right? (laughs) I can stay out until 2 o'clock in the morning and still get to church tomorrow. Yeah, well, what condition are you in, right? You're going to appear before the Lord. You're going to be face-to-face with the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. Worship is a dialogue with God. God comes and meets with us. He inhabits our praises. And he's, he meets with us. And if you look at the order of worship, I'm not going to take time to go through it. You can see that it's dialogical. God calls us, we respond. God speaks to us, he responds. We sing, we pray. A dialogical order to our worship service. And the big thing is that the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ speaks to you. And let there be no mistake about this, please. All right? Because if you misunderstand it, you'll miss the blessing. Your groom speaks to you. The second Helvetic confession at the time of the Reformation said the preached word of God is the word of God. Now that admits of qualifications, and you might say, yeah, all those reformers, they were kind of drunk with doctrine. They really overstated the case. No, they didn't. I want you to look at a few passages with me, all right? Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, Revelation, Jude, John, Peter, right? 1 Peter chapter 1, that's from the back of the Bible, not the front. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth through a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again... Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the gospel that was preached to you. Do you understand what Peter's saying? When the gospel is faithfully preached... When a faithful man stands in this pulpit and opens this text and faithfully explains and applies this word, 
people are born again. Because God is speaking. God is at work. God's spirit attends that word. To raise the dead to newness of life. That's why in every doctrinal statement coming out of the Protestant Reformation, preaching is the primary means of grace. How grace conveys is conveyed and communicated from God to his people as he speaks with them, when he meets with them. I won't bore you with quoting confession after confession after catechism after catechism, right? Not enough? I know you're all from Missouri. Show me, right? 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. So Paul here is talking to the Thessalonians about his teaching to them, all right? And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Paul says, when I taught you, you received it for what it was, not the word of men, not the word of Paul. Did Paul write it? Did Paul speak it? He most certainly did. With all his unique personality, with all the distinctives of Paul and not John and not Peter and one thing or the other. He was no dictator. He was not a typewriter. He's not a dictation machine or anything. It was Paul. But he says, no, no. God spoke to you. God spoke to you. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. I love this one. All right, I'm giving you a warning. Who's really, really good Bible students here? Ephesians 2. All right. Ephesians 2. Come on, who's the best? All right, Ephesians 2.11, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles becoming one in Christ. He's torn down the uh, dividing wall of hostility, remember, right? So let's just establish what's going on here. All right, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, who's he himself? Christ, right? He himself, for Christ himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law uh, of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he, who's he, Jesus, might create in himself, who's himself, Jesus, one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he, who's he, Jesus, he came and preached peace to you who were far off, you Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, Jews. Now, here's the question. Who's a really, really good Bible student? All right? Scott, you got the answer? Is that the answer? All right. Okay, it's all right. So, who's a really good Bible student, right? When did Jesus go to Ephesus? Exactly. Jesus never went to Ephesus. Never left Israel. Paul went to Ephesus. And Paul says, when I came and preached to you, Jesus preached to you. What more? Romans 10, one more. Romans 10, one more. Romans 10, verse 13. 
It's a famous passage, right? Verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. Amen. If you don't know Jesus, call on his name today. He's here. He's talking to you. His arms are wide open. Don't reject him. Call on his name today. Right? Verse 14, how then will they call on him? Who's him? Jesus. Right? In whom they have not believed. Right? And how are they to believe in him? Who's him? Jesus. Of is not there in the text. How are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? Whom they have never heard? Jesus. And how are they to hear Jesus without someone preaching? And you'll notice the footnote reference says, number five, him whom they have never heard. Not of whom, not about whom, but him whom they've never heard. And how will they hear Jesus unless somebody preaches? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful the feet of those who preach the good news. They've not all obeyed the gospel. Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through hearing Jesus. When there's preaching in the gathered assembly of his bride, the church, on the Sabbath. Now, I've fallen a couple of times. I tried to be very positive here this morning. Do you see the blessings of corporate worship on the Lord's Day? Calvin says, he says, when a man has climbed into, uh, in, in, climbed up into the pulpit, it is so that God may speak to us by the mouth of a man. Jesus is speaking to you now. Admits of qualifications. I'm not claiming infallibility, inspiration, inerrancy. Of course not. But the preached word of God is the word of God. And when we gather, that's what's going on. Jesus is speaking. It is the main means of grace by which God communicates and conveys that grace to you, his dearly loved people. So do we have to worship twice on Sunday? If you got this right, let's worship three times. <laughs> Let's worship four times. One author, put it this way if I can find it. Two services. Worship God and receive his precious promises 104 times rather than 52. Hear an additional 52 carefully prepared expository sermons. Receive the Lord's Supper more times. Sing hundreds more psalms and hymns and pray hundreds more prayers with the people of God. Why is this important? More grace, more Bible, more truth, more teaching, more Jesus, more Jesus. God bless the Sabbath day as a day for you and him. 
for you to be blessed by meeting with him and hearing him speak to you. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace for surely we are undeserving and unworthy. Why did you love us? Because you loved us. We, we, we can't even begin to fathom that. And yet you have. That's true. And we love you. And thank you for this day. And thank you that you speak to us. Hear us, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen and amen.